There's a whole catalog of unsolved mysteries, unsolved problems in all kinds of areas of study, all kinds of disciplines in academia and in life. In metaphysics, there is Sarides' paradox, for example, which basically asks the question, how do you define something? For example, a bale of hay. When is a bale of hay not a bale of hay? Is it not a bale of hay when you pull a straw out? Or what about the next straw? Or the next straw? Or the next straw? At what point does it become a pile of hay instead of a bale of hay? Obviously, we know when it becomes one straw. But there's all kinds of questions like that about all kinds of definitions about things in the area of metaphysics. Or in the area of physics, we could talk about the apparent contradiction in the idea of, of uh, quantum physics where at the grand scale of things on the distant quadrants of the universe, there's all sorts of homogeneity, all sorts of similarity, and yet the universe is filled in its discrete details and discrete values with non-homogeneous physical principles. And physicists have a hard time explaining exactly why that is. I think that's called the horizon problem, if I'm not mistaken there. There are math problems. Of course, the problem with that is I don't think I could really explain to you what they are. I don't really even sure I understand it myself. But there's all kinds of problems, right? There's philosophical problems. One of the most notorious is that which they call the infinite regression That is to say, philosophers believe that knowledge consists of justified belief. But then, of course, it begs the question, is what justifies your belief? And then you come up with a justification, and you have to justify that, which then needs its own justification, and you just move move infinitely in regress all the way back to uh, no beginning ever. You have all these sorts of problems that are out there, all these conundrums, all these unsolved mysteries, and all of these areas of study science and math and medical studies, all sorts of things that have their mysteries or have their problems. Well, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we've been considering another problem, which is a problem of wisdom. Where does it come from? What does it look like? What's its contrast? What's foolishness? What are all these things Where should we look for them? What should we hold to? The Corinthians had apparently concluded that wherever wisdom comes from, it doesn't come from Paul. It doesn't come from Paul, they concluded, for a number of reasons. It doesn't come from him because what he taught doesn't sound like everything else they hear out there from their experts and from their leaders and from their reputable ones. It doesn't look like all the other things that everyone else calls wisdom. It is, in fact, it's, it's considered weak and naive and unlearned. At least the stuff that Paul preached was. It didn't look like the wisdom of the world. It didn't sound like the wisdom of the world. It didn't act like the wisdom of the world. And most certainly, it didn't get praised. It didn't get the accolades like the wisdom of the world. So they concluded that Paul must not have much wisdom to offer. Because he didn't seem to be very esteemed by those around him. Not only that they would throw in there that he didn't have much to offer because he didn't charge anything for it. Remember that from last week? I mean, they, they just concluded that if he really had something, 
that he would be getting a hefty price for it. And Paul basically gave away his teaching free of charge wherever he went. And so they criticized him even for that. But all the experts of their culture, all of them demanded not only top dollar, but they demanded glamour and praise and accolades. And that's what their wisdom was supposed to yield. And it didn't do any of that for the Apostle Paul. And so they developed not an appetite for what Paul was giving, not an appetite for the Word of God. They developed an appetite for what the world was giving. An appetite for what looked and sounded and originated with the world. They wanted something that would be esteemed something that would be thought of as profound, something that would be reflective uh, on their intelligence, something that would make them respectable, make them appear sophisticated. So they were inclined inclined to go after the wisdom of the world and reject what Paul had to offer. Now, Now, Paul's been writing to them about this for the first chapter and a half of 1 Corinthians, basically going through and saying, look, God's opposed to the wisdom of the world. God hasn't even called many wise people into the church. In fact, when I preach, Paul says, I I didn't come to you preaching wisdom or any of that stuff. So it's possible that these guys could have been reading everything Paul said so far and actually have concluded they were right. I mean, here's out of, the apostle, out of the horse's mouth, out of the Apostle Paul's own mouth, that he didn't want any wisdom, he didn't want to have anything to do with it. He was happy in his unsophisticated, uneducated, simplistic worldview. That's, in fact, the way a lot of people view Christians, is that your problem is that you like your ignorance because you like your bliss. That you like to have an uncomplicated, simplistic world that doesn't have to deal with all the philosophical issues and all the deep issues and all the profound issues and that your problem is that you're clinging to myths and fairy tales and all this naive stuff because you just like ignorance. Well, they could have very well heard what the Apostle Paul said and thought that by his own words he's validating that. And so as we come to chapter 2, verse 6, Paul begins to offer a little bit of clarification. I mean, he's been on the attack against wisdom pretty hard up to this point. But he wants to give a balance to all of that, an overall balance to his view of wisdom. Because in fact, wisdom for Paul and for every other believer is very, very important. It is, it is infinitely important. I mean, it is at the core of what we preach and what Paul preaches. It is at the center of his ministry and everything he has to say. It is very important. So you need not misunderstand what Paul's saying. The wisdom that he ascribes may run contrary to the consensus of the world, but it's wisdom still. And Paul offers that clarification in these few verses. I mean, he doesn't want them to have the idea that somehow they're to value stupidity. He doesn't want to have them the idea that somehow they're to, they're, they're to love what is illogical. There's always been too much of that in the church. He wants them to understand that he does speak wisdom, but it's a wisdom of a different kind. His ministry was marked by a profundity of wisdom, which exceeded anything this world knew by its own natural, experiential, rationalistic resources. And so in the following verses, Paul wants to clarify exactly what wisdom is, where it comes from, how it's received, and most importantly, who sees it? Who sees it? 
Because the immediately obvious point is that most people didn't see it. I mean, they would go to the church, they would hear the Apostle Paul preach, they would listen or whatever, and they would not see it. They would understand what Paul's saying, but they would not see it as wisdom. And so Paul offers this, that he does indeed preach wisdom. But he wants to elaborate on why so many people miss it. In fact, he gives us four reasons here why so many will miss the wisdom of God. Or another way to think of this is Paul's giving us insights into seeing the secrets of God. He's giving us He's given us insights into how you and I can see the mysteries and the secrets of God. He primarily is giving it from a negative standpoint, explaining why so many people will miss this. And he gives us four basic reasons. Wisdom is discerned by the mature. It is decreed for the benefit of believers. It is disregarded by the world and is disclosed by supernatural revelation. Those four reasons kind of constitute the key reasons why so many people will hear the message of the Scripture and message of Christianity and will miss it as any kind of true wisdom. Four key reasons why so many will hear the preaching of God's Word and miss the profound wisdom that is right in front of their eyes. First of all, this will happen because Paul says God's wisdom is discerned by the mature is discerned by the mature. Verse 6, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So he's offering his point of clarification that while he excludes the wisdom of the world in his preaching, he doesn't exclude wisdom. In fact, he preaches he preaches. True wisdom, profound wisdom, deep wisdom. He's saying, however, only the mature would see this. That is to say, even among believers, there will continue to be those who have no appetite for sound doctrine. They have no interest in sound preaching. They have no interest in deep preaching and profound preaching. They have no interest in understanding and getting their minds around the wisdom of God. And they have that because Paul says they're immature. They're still enamored with worldly thinking. They're not Christ-centered in their mind. As a matter of fact, if you go down to chapter 3, verse 1, this is exactly what Paul criticizes the Corinthians for. He says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as what? As infants in Christ. In other words, as immature people. That's how I had to talk to you, he says. I fed you with milk, Not with solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it. Or why aren't they ready? Because verse 3 says, you're still in the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? In other words, you're thinking, he says, the the reason you're not interested in this, the reason that you're not really ready for any kind of deep and profound wisdom of God, the reason, he says, is because you're still thinking. In human terms, your goals, your values, your standards, your beliefs are all still influenced, all still governed by the world around you. And so when you fill your mind with the ideals and principles and values of the world, you're never going to have much place to value the wisdom of God, basically. In other words, your ability 
to see and to receive the wisdom of God is dictated by the condition of your heart. It's dictated by the condition of your heart. I'm going to show you this in another passage. Look with me over at 1 Peter chapter 2 because Peter essentially says the same thing, the same concept. 1 Peter 2 and verse 1, Peter says, so put away, or it would be better to translate that as putting away because it's a participle, it's not a finite verb in the original language. Putting away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow up in salvation. Now don't, don't confuse what Paul's saying there, or what Peter's saying there. He's not telling them to be infants in terms of their maturity. He's not, in other words, he's not bringing that image up like Paul is. When Paul talks about maturity and infanthood, he's not talking about their cognitive ability. He's primarily keying off of their physical appetite. I don't know if you've ever had children around the house, but when they're hungry... Everybody knows it, right? He says, I want you to have that kind of appetite for the Word of God. I want you to have that kind of hunger for the Word of God, and you'll never have it until you meet the conditions. What are the conditions? That you put away malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And you could add other things in there. That you put away, in other words, all those deceitful, worldly, fleshly, humanistic ways of thinking. These are the sort of the prerequisites for understanding the Word of God. Conditions in your heart that can cloud your judgment as to God's Word and make it undesirable to you. You're no longer hungering for it. The Word of God has lost its fascination in your heart and mind. It's no longer wisdom to you, it is now mundane, it is now simple. It is now dull, it is now ordinary, it is now boring and uninteresting. You are much more fascinated with the wisdom of the world. This is your spiritual immaturity. Paul's saying, look, I preached wisdom. But many will miss it because only the mature see it. Many won't recognize it because they're still walking around in worldliness. Their minds are still dominated by worldly values. They are governed, as Paul says back over in 1 Corinthians 2, by the wisdom of this age. That word ionos basically refers to the period of time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. All that governs, all that dictates, all that rules this world. Which, by the way, 2 Corinthians 4 says the God of this world rules this world, that's Satan. And he's the one that infuses it with his principles, with his values, with his desires. He diffuses that, as Paul says in verse 6 there, he diffuses that through the leaders or the rulers of this world. That is the ones who are respected, the ones who are esteemed. These are his instruments. They give direction, they give insight, they give counsel. They're the experts, they're the leaders, they're the ones who set the pace. Paul says, this is, this is, this is different from what I preach indeed. And if that's what's filling your mind, sure, then what I preach is not going to be wisdom to you. If you're still fleshly, if you're still infantile, in your spiritual life, if you're still immature, 
If your mind is still being filled through the screen of your television, the speakers of your radio, the pages of your book, with nothing but the values of the system of this world, sure, then what I preach is not going to be wisdom to you. It's going to be mundane. It's going to be simple. It's going to be uninteresting. Problem is, Paul says the wisdom of this age, the rulers of this age, he says they're all passing away. They're all passing away. They're constantly rising up and constantly passing off the scene. One failed theory, one failed philosophy after another, they're constantly having to revamp their approaches, revamp their systems. They're constantly having to jettison that which is outdated, outmoded, no longer works for them. They're constantly fading away. In fact, we read in our scripture reading this morning over in Psalm 92, verse 6, the stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand, that though the wicked sprout up like grass and evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction, he says. I mean, you see them and they're the hottest thing and they're the latest thing and everyone's on the craze going after them and guess what? They too will pass away. Katargeo is the word. They'll be brought to nothing. They're doomed to perish. This is the most tragic fact about them is that not only are they passing away in this life, but eternally. Those who fall into their way will be damned and judged. So Paul says, we speak wisdom. It's just not the wisdom that you're filling your heart and mind with. If you're filling your heart and mind with the wisdom of this age. By implication, Paul doesn't preach the wisdom of this age. He doesn't fill his sermons. He doesn't fill his time with their tidbits, with their insights. Wasn't his standard. He preached true wisdom. The wisdom that comes from God. The wisdom that if you're sincerely seeking truth, you'll find in Christ. The difference is not in what he preaches, but it's in those who hear. It's in those who listen. Where is their heart? The truths of the gospel are profound, of course, because God is profound. The truths of the gospel are wise because God is wise. I mean, the truths of God's word are deep because God is deep. I mean, there is no shallow thought in God. There's nothing about God that is superficial. There's nothing about God that is trivial. There's nothing about God that is mundane. And so by by extension, if you are preaching the Word of God, you are preaching wisdom, you are preaching deep thoughts, you are preaching profound thoughts. As a matter of fact, down at the end of chapter 2 and verse 16, Paul will come out at the end and say, look, we have here in the Word of God, what we have is the mind of Christ. And so to open up the Word of God, to peek into the Word of God, is to peek into God's mind. There's nothing superficial about that. Some people, that's really all they want out of the gospel, though. That's really all they ever want out of their church is superficial truth because they worship, quite honestly, a superficial God. All they want out of their church is trivial truth because they worship a trivial God. Their thoughts of God go no deeper 
than the latest byline, the latest joke, the latest proverb for the day. That's about as deep as it goes. They could find that on the on the advice column of the newspaper. They want trivial truth from their pulpits because they have a trivial God. They want the tidbits. They want the latest insights. They want the superficial. They want the giddy. Because that's the God they worship. I never forget going to this church in San Francisco Bay Area. My wife and I traveled up there. We were visiting some friends. We went to church with them. And it was a church that just was abysmal. I mean, they worshiped the mother God. They worshiped, uh, you know, this God of their own making. They rejected the scripture as any kind of inerrant standard, any kind of true word from God. Yet we were amazed as we were going to the Sunday school. The Sunday school was like a game. I mean, they just, they basically just spent the whole time uh, with all these facts about Old Testament characters and geography and pulling out details, you know, so-and-so's third son and grandson or whatever. I mean, stuff I could never get off the top of my head. I mean, I was amazed at the trivia that these people knew about the Scripture, but that was all it was for them. The Scripture was no authority. The Scripture was no guide. The Scripture was no final place for answer for them. It was nothing but a book of trivia. And quite honestly, that's all some people look to the Scripture for. They want to know some little geographical detail, some little, uh, uh, some little particular insight, some little catch of phrase. But they don't want to know the God behind the Scripture because their, their religion is superficial. It's trivial, it's shallow, because their God is trivial and shallow. Well, listen, if you're going to hear the preaching of God's Word, you're going to hear something profound. If you're going to hear the opening up of God's words, if you're going to hear the opening up of God's thoughts, if you're going to hear the opening up of God's Scriptures, you're going to hear something profound, you're going to hear something deep, you're going to hear something wise, because God is profound, God is deep, and God is wise. You'll only see it, though, if your mind isn't clouded by the things of the world. Well, isn't the only reason people miss the wisdom of God? It's not only because they're immature, but also, Paul says, it's because the wisdom of God is decreed for the benefit of believers. It's decreed for the benefit of believers. He says in verse 7, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our Glory. He decreed it for our glory. It's an interesting word, doxa. It's used 116, excuse me, 166 times throughout the New Testament. In virtually all of them, it speaks of God's glory. I mean, there's only this is really the only place you'll ever find it speaking of our glory. You find one time Paul Paul saying to the Thessalonians that they were his glory, but he's really talking about there the joy that he gets from the ministry that he had among them. But, but here, this is talking about the, the result of God's word in our life. It, is, it results in our glory. You'll say, well, what does that mean? I mean, it's always talking about God's glory. Uh, what is our glory? Well, let me show you for just a moment. Look with me over Second 2 Corinthians chapter 3, because I think this helps us understand what Paul's getting at here. 
2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says in verse 9, actually, we'll go back to verse 7. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory which was being brought to an end. In other words, he's talking about Moses and the, and the Old Covenant and the Decalogue and the Ten Commandments which were carved on tablets of stone. And what would happen is when Moses went up to the mountain, first of all, to receive that, he came down and having met with God face to face, he physically had a glow, he physically had a, a shining about him that, that was too much for the people around him to, to take, and, and so they were terrified by it. And whenever he would go into the tabernacle to meet with God, and he would come out, his face would physically glow. He goes on to say, he says, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to no glory at all, because the glory that surpasses it. For if it was being, if it was being brought to an end came with glory, much more what is permanent will have glory. In other words, he's making contrast here with the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the old ministry of condemnation, the new ministry of righteousness. He's making a contrast here between what was former and what has now come with the arrival of Christ and the disclosure of the, the full glory of the gospel. And this is what he says in verse 12. Since we have a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not uh, gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. You see, folks, this is our glory. This is why God decreed the Word of God. This is why He gave the gospel. So that we, gazing into it with unveiled face, are being transformed into the image that we see there. We're being transformed into the image of glory, which is the image of Christ, from one degree to the next in this constant progressive growth pattern in our life. This is our glory. This is what Paul means. And in fact, you read other places of Scripture, you read that this, uh, you read about the glory of God, and you read, like for example, in 1 Peter 5.10, that we're called into His glory. 2 Peter 1, it says again, we're called to His glory. This is our glory. This is what the Scripture was all about. This is why it was decreed, in order to conform you and I to the image of God. That's its purpose. Purpose for which He gave it. It was to produce Christ's 
likeness in you. It was to produce righteousness in you. It was decreed in order to explain to you how in every situation, in every decision, in every thought, in every step of life, how you are to behave and act and respond in order to glorify God. That's why it was given to us. It was decreed to feed a holy ambition in contrast to the ambitions of the world which are full of self-interest, self-glory, and their own lust. And what Paul's saying is this is why so many people miss the wisdom of God's Word. They're looking for the wrong thing. People come to my office, sit down, they bring all kinds of problems. They bring marriage problems. They bring parenting problems. They bring financial problems. They bring relational problems. You know what I always ask them? Why are you here? Why did you come? Well, Pastor, I came because I mean, I can't get my wife. You know, we can't communicate. We can't do it. I mean, that's why I'm here. I said, well, if that's why you're here, I'm sorry. I can't help you. Well, what are you talking about? Well, I can't help you unless the reason that you're here is to glorify God. If that's your reason, then I've got all kinds of answers. If that's your reason, then that's, let's open up, because that's what God's Word's about. See, there's no promise that God's Word is the automatic fix to your marriage, the automatic fix to your finances, the automatic fix to your career problems. That's not what God's Word was given for, you see. God's Word was decreed for a purpose. And the purpose was to conform you to the image of Christ. And if, God, if, if that is through a trial, or if that is through a difficulty, or if that's through, through some dark time, your main concern ought to be as you open up this book, not how to make someone respond to you in a better way. Your main concern ought to be, how do I glorify God? Because that's what it's given for. But you see, people, they open up the Word of God and they don't find the fix that they're looking for. What do they do? They set aside God's Word, they go to the world. Because they, under, they misunderstand why it was decreed. They misunderstand why it was given. It was given, it was decreed, it was marked out from the very beginning for our glory, for God's purpose to conform you to the image of Christ. But guess what? That's really what you ought to be seeking anyway. There's no greater path of blessing. There's no other way that you'll ever find what will satisfy your heart. Because what satisfies your heart isn't a happier marriage. It isn't a better job. It isn't better finances. What satisfies your heart is knowing and being like your God. And that's why the scripture was given. It was decreed for the benefit of believers. And all these people who try to reduce the Scripture down to some sort of pragmatic tool for the betterment of their business principles or for the therapy of their marriage or for the strategy of their pocketbook or their theory of diet and health or whatever it is, all these people who are presenting the Bible for anything else are presenting it for why it's not decreed. And you're going to find it, at the end of the day, insufficient if that's all you're looking for. You're going to miss the, the real wisdom of God. You're going to reach a point where it no longer is giving you the answer that you think you're seeking after. Because you think that the Word of God was given to feed your own appetites. It's not. 
It's given to conform you to God's image. That's why it's there. That's why Paul says it was predestined, proridzo, proridzo, excuse me. It was marked off. God set the boundaries of this word. This is what Paul calls the secret and hidden wisdom of God, the mysterion, the thing which mankind could not have gotten had God not revealed it to him. That's basically what mystery means, the secret and hidden purpose of God. I mean, you go through all of your life chasing after all these things, thinking that that's what life's all about, but the thing that you need to discover is the thing that God has made known the thing which man would never have known on his own, which is the fact that you were created for a purpose. And that purpose is to be in fellowship with your maker, to be in fellowship with your creator, to be like him. And when you get your mind around that, God's word explodes with wisdom. God's word comes alive with so much wisdom that previously might have been even hidden in secret to you. There's a third reason why so many miss the wisdom of God. It isn't just immaturity, it isn't just understanding that decree, but also because the world disregards it. It's disregarded by the world. None of the rulers, he says in verse 8 of this age, understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, it's still a mystery to a lot of people. And, and the evidence of that is essentially how they treat Christ. I mean, that is the, that is the, the fulcrum point of where you stand in wisdom. That is the epicenter of determining your wisdom. It is the expression and the manifestation of your wisdom. What do you think of Christ? If Christ was a fool and a madman, then to have rejected Him would have been wise. But if Christ is the ultimate expression of wisdom that's ever walked the face of this earth, then to have rejected Him would prove your foolishness. This is what Paul says. These leaders, these experts, these esteemed ones, these prestigious ones, these ones that everyone was following, if they had known the wisdom of God, they would not have done this, he says. And when he says, if they had known, their problem wasn't lack of knowledge. In fact, the ones who crucified Christ, the reason they crucified Him is because exactly they knew so much about Him. They heard what He taught, they saw His miracles, and they didn't like it. He stood on trial. He went through, in fact, three trials. In a single night, He stood before three judges, three panels, and every one of them examined Him, and every one of them, every one of them learned about Him, learned what He taught, and they still rejected Him. So their problem wasn't lack of information. It was resistance to what they did know. It was a spiritual inability to embrace the truth. These experts, these monumental ones, these noble ones, admired ones, these celebrated prestigious personalities, these esteemed minds, they rejected Christ. 
And so many people will, even still today, because they will quite honestly fall right in line with these esteemed people because they're still rejected by the world, because the world still doesn't recognize the wisdom of Christ, because the world still doesn't esteem the wisdom of Christ, because their celebrated people still don't give credence to the wisdom of Christ. Their respected people don't do that. Many people will fall in line with their leaders. But at the end of the day, your assessment of Christ is the most direct indication of your wisdom or foolishness. Christ was the purest expression of wisdom ever. And just like water, which always runs down to the lowest point, those who are seeking true wisdom will always find it in Christ. Those who are really seeking wisdom will always find it there. How you respond to Christ is a direct reflection of whether you're full of wisdom or full of foolishness. I mean, you can't have one or the other. You can't have, you can't accept the wisdom and reject the Savior, obviously. And you don't accept the Savior and reject the wisdom. It doesn't work that way. If you accept Christ, you accept His pathway. You accept the reality that you must lose your life in order to find it. You accept the wisdom that to be crucified together with Christ is to live. You accept the wisdom that you take up your cross daily and follow Christ, and that is the pathway of life. You accept the fact that if you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, He will lift you up in due time. You accept all of that when you accept Christ. You accept the wisdom because you accept Him. There, of course, are lots of people who want to take the wisdom of the world and repackage it under the banner of Christ and make for themselves some libertine form of Christianity, some legalistic form of Christianity, some mystical form of Christianity, all that would feed their own ego and their own desires and their own self-reliance or whatever it might be. But if you find the true Christ, you find wisdom. And if you reject the true Christ, you reject wisdom. Paul says you can follow the leaders, the experts of the world if you want, but they are the ones you need to understand who daily, consistently stand opposed to the gospel and to the truth of God's word. So many people miss the truth and the wisdom of God's word because their esteemed ones, their respected ones, have themselves rejected it. And you can't receive the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then go live by the wisdom that all those people give you. It's inconsistent. There's a fourth reason why so many miss the wisdom of God. And that's that God's wisdom is disclosed by supernatural revelation. I mean, really, all this sort of begs the question. Paul... If these leaders don't have it, and if it's a mystery to so many people, if you're going to say that they somehow have missed the wisdom of God, what makes you think that you've got it, right, Paul? I mean, isn't your opinion just another opinion? Well, Paul writes in verse 9, As it's written, what no eye has seen, 
nor ear heard, nor, heart, nor the heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love Him, He says in verse 10, God has revealed to us. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Paul says the reason that we have wisdom, the reason that our message is true wisdom, is because it came by divine revelation. See, no other source, no other source will ever be adequate to give the wisdom of God. He quotes this from sort of a loose quotation from Isaiah 64. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man or imagined entering in the heart of man. And you probably have heard that. You probably memorized that. A lot of you probably sang that in your, you know, Gaither concert or whatever. And you thought that talked about heaven, right? Well, it's not talking about heaven. He's not saying these are the things God's prepared for you in heaven. What he's saying, this is the wisdom that God's prepared for you. And it didn't arise, he says, from what the eye has seen. In other words, this isn't wisdom that originated with empirical knowledge. That is knowledge that is observable, experimental It didn't arise out of sophisticated methods of investigation and repeated examination. It didn't didn't come from a microscope and it didn't come from a telescope. It didn't come from anything that is observable with the eye. It didn't come from empirical knowledge. And wisdom, he says, also doesn't come from what you hear. It doesn't come from your existing traditions. It doesn't come from your knowledge of the community. It doesn't come from your history. It doesn't come from your chronicles. It doesn't come from your folklore. None of those things provide the wisdom that is true wisdom. And it doesn't come, he says, thirdly, it doesn't enter into the heart of man. It isn't imagined in the heart of man. That is to say, it doesn't come from your philosophical musings. It doesn't come from your intuition. It doesn't come from your insight. It doesn't come from your imagination. None of those things, which are the traditional sources for wisdom and understanding about the world and about life and about man, none of those things, he says, could ever yield the wisdom that you need. None of them. Every conceivable earthly source is bankrupt, he says. The true wisdom, the wisdom which allows you to make sense out of all those things you see and all those things you hear and all those things you imagine, and all those things you philosophize about, the true wisdom that helps you to make sense out of all that data comes only by divine revelation. It comes only from God. That's what Paul's saying. That's this ultimate source. No mortal man, no matter what his access is to the empirical senses, the informed heritage, the product of his own creativity and scholarship, the the, the decades of research, the centuries of books, they're all useless if they aren't read through the lens of the divine book. Wisdom prepared for those who love God, he says in verse 9, which is basically the simplest description of a Christian. 
you love God above everything. If that's the case, God's prepared wisdom for you that goes beyond the wisdom of the most profound and respected thinker whose only resources come from this life. Paul says God's revealed this to us. God's made it known to us. By the way, the us there is the apostles. The apostles and the prophets. This is the, this is the contrast that he maintains going all the way through chapter 3 when he says things like, you're God's field, we're God's workers. He's talking about the apostles. He's saying they're the ones who received this divine communication. The only possible way of knowing the wisdom of God was if God chose to make Himself known, if God chose to communicate, to give us a word, that's the only way. Which He's done, thankfully. And Paul goes on to explain in verses 10, 11, all the way down really through verse 13, in one of the most profound sections in all of the Word of God on the process of inspiration. He will explain to us exactly how this took place. We'll get to that next week. Still so many people who cling to the empty wisdom of the world. They miss the wisdom of God. They hear it preached. They might even see it on the pages, but they miss it. For so many reasons, they miss it. They miss it because of the immaturity of their own heart and mind. They miss it because they fail to understand the key of why it was given to begin with in order to teach you how to glorify God in every situation. They miss it because they're following after the experts, the rulers, the leaders of this world. They miss it because they're looking at all the wrong sources. They fail to realize it's the Word of God alone that gives it to us. Thankfully, the Lord has helped us, right? We can see the secrets of God. We can understand the message that is necessary to understand, not only for this life, but for all eternity. We can understand that we're sinners. That God created us in this life, but we were born still in rebellion against Him. And that unless we ever reach the point of emptying ourselves of ourself, unless we ever get to the point of renouncing our own wisdom, we'll never see the wisdom of God. Jesus told the parable, or told the story, excuse me, in John 9. John told the story of Jesus healing a man of blindness. Comes back to him later and says, do you believe in the Son of God? He says, who is he? He says, I'm he, the one that you didn't see earlier, you see now. The man worshipped him. And Jesus says, for judgment he came to the world, that those who are blind may see, and that those who think they see will remain in their blindness. This is what it means to come to Christ. It means a total renunciation of all your self-reliance, of all your wisdom, of all your understanding. The casting of yourself at God's feet as the only source for life, for truth, for knowledge. Making yourself His. And by Christ, having all your sins forgiven. This is the gospel we preach. This is the gospel that's offered to you.
our encouragement to you today is that if you have not received that gospel, you would, before you leave here, that you would see the waywardness of your sin, the foolishness of your heart, you'd repent of that, and you'd cry out to God who's given a Savior in Jesus Christ, that all your sins can be washed away, and you can know and be in fellowship with your God. Let's stand together. We will pray and then close with a song. Father, we're so grateful for wisdom that rescued us out of darkness and foolishness, that brought us who had no resources to ever really find the truth, no resources outside of our own darkened mind, out of our own wayward and crooked pathway. Lord, we're so grateful that you've shined a light of truth into the world in your word. You've made it known to us so that we can walk according to that age-old decree, the pathway and purpose of life being conformed to the image of our Savior. Lord, we only pray that you would conform us from glory to glory into the image of Him, as is your desire and the pathway of truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.